0: Hey there, skips and skipperettes from all across the vast electronic wasteland that is known only as Internet Land. And welcome back to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. This week's adventure in skippertainment is the first of a two-part episode with skipper Kevin Cavanaugh. Kevin was a seasonal cast member who worked the summer and winter seasons in 1975 and 1976. Now, as of the date of this recording, he worked at Disneyland the farthest back of any of the skips we've sat down with, a marvelous 39 years ago. Kevin and I chat about what has changed, what stayed the same, and what it was like to work the Bicentennial at Disneyland. Now, he obviously has some very fond and clear memories of his time, and it was a joy to chat with him. And also, when I went to record with him, he had just baked and gifted me an exceptional loaf of Irish soda bread. I want to put it out there for everyone uh, who's going to appear on the podcast. You You should bake for me whenever you're on the show. It's just the right thing to do, don't you think? Now, other than that, things are moving along uh, just great in the world of the Jungle Cruise. We're seeing great growth over at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Jungle Cruise, C-R-E-W-S. I just sat down with the guys over at the Sweep Spot podcast uh, and talked about my time doing the Jungle Cruise podcast. Yeah, it was kind of meta going into the podcast to talk about the podcast I do about the time I was at Disney. It's super recursive, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, As always, if you are or you know someone who worked at the Jungle Cruise, please feel free to drop us a line at junglecruise at gmail.com. That's C-R-E-W-S. We always love to hear your feedback about the show as well. Now, you know, I haven't asked uh, anyone to do this for a while, but if you could swing over to iTunes, give us a rating and a review. It's a super important part of us getting more exposure with iTunes and our Stitcher radio partners. All right, everyone, season three, episode 14 is now live as we sit down with Skipper Kevin Kavanaugh, the Bicentennial Skipper. You know tiki idols it 's got um, it 's got just some incredible stuff in the background yeah. but no, it, and it 's kind of like a little piratey and oh, it's got right. a, a pirate kind of bar thing going on yeah. but anyway, we had about 30, mm-hmm. thirty or so people from that generation mm-hmm. and i'm trying to your name got brought up by so, Jef, by jeff, but well, there was I mean, there were a couple other people who had mentioned mm-hmm. you and and it was all spoken with that's, with good regard
1: that's kind well jeff was i mean he was one of those people that when. This Facebook was established, the Facebook page, Mm -hmm. I just, I knew I knew him, and then once, you know, I was connected, and we went to high school together, too, we were on the track team together, so there was a a longer connection with him than with everybody else that I worked with.
0: Well, and I'll tell you that sitting down with Jeff was one of the better um, interview things Mm -hmm. that I've I've been able to do lately, partially because he was so... um, involved in the Tokyo jungle right. cruise setup and right. he actually went over and set the yeah. things up and I'm sure you heard the story on the, yes. the podcast that I they did. that they because it's superstitious I did a little more research uh, we go counterclockwise. Okay. That's actually a very big superstitious sure. thing in Japanese culture.
1: Makes sense. So go with what they are going to, they want.
0: want the boats to go the other direction. I always joked. Um, I always told people on the ride that um, we were going to open a, a jungle cruise in you know a Disneyland in uh, Australia. Mm-hmm. But when we found out that the boats had to go the opposite direction, we couldn't do it. Okay. That's a Coriolis effect joke.
1: <laughs> it is. One I of those just, things where you have to have the hurricanes and Yeah,
0: it goes in the opposite but, direction in the southern hemisphere. I figured you the teaching experience you might get yes. the, the fine refined jokes yeah. like that.
1: So. No, that's nice. It's nice to have a high shoot for a higher level. I always try to do yeah, it. Yeah,
0: well I'll uh, we'll do the quick introduction, Ethan, okay. part of the thing. I I'll edit to a point sure, in sure. that first 2 minutes that that sounds good. Sure. Um Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. I like how I wave to the non-existent, it's the non-existent audience. It just it sets they the tone. They appreciate it. They do. Um, we are uh, square in the middle of April. Uh, we were sitting down with uh, Skipper Kevin Kavanaugh because everyone has the honorary title for the rest of their life. <laughs> there are no such thing as, ex, as ex-skippers, just people who don't do the job anymore because exactly. the, the type of person. Uh, Kevin, uh, I'm, I'm going to see if I remember. You told me it was 78 was your starting. 75 and 76. 75, 76. So you were there for the bicentennial. Oh, but, I was. Uh, and then was. you you were at the resort through.
1: I was the summer and Christmas of those two years.
0: Okay, so just those for some. I thought you were there longer for no, some reason.
1: That's why I was kind of interesting compared to some of the other podcasts I've listened to. I was literally the summer Christmas job. I was a teenager and I was never permanent part-time because I went to school in Northern California in college. Mm -hmm. And so compared to so many other people who were there for a much longer time, also a little bit later, my my perspective was a little bit different just because I was always a seasonal.
0: Well, and it's so interesting because, you know, you don't... That time period, Mm -hmm. things like seasonal existed because Mm -hmm. there was... I mean, the park was still very seasonal. Mm -hmm. You know, it was summer and holidays, and, you know, when you had you know, your marches, and I, mean, I assume it was a little spring break bump, but...
1: No, I was, I, well, maybe others, but I was yeah. I was not around, so I,
0: Yeah, but I just, I mean, yeah, I mean, so, you know, it, it's not how it is today, where okay. it's, the park's at capacity almost every right. day anymore, right. you know, it's amazing, because it just feels like it's so packed sure. all the time, and I remember even, uh, you know, 15, 13, 15 years ago, when I started there, mm. you still had vast... Uh, Four or five months out of the year that were, you know, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., and right. you barely had anyone in the park for that time. I want to say even 10 a.m. openings on some Yeah, Sundays. there sure, um, in the winter. Yeah, where, you know, where now it's 8 to midnight almost every day of the week, it seems like. so.
1: No, I remember a couple of Christmas, not Christmas Day, but during Christmas season when the line would dry up. You know, there would yeah. be, you'd be waiting. Um, you just buzzed. Okay.
0: That's right. Um, did you, uh, did you did you feel the shaker uh, we had a couple weeks
1: ago? It did. It was very very pleasant. Just yeah. a little bit of a roll. It was. Nothing scary, but it was you know letting us know where we live again.
0: It's like we're connoisseurs of earthquakes. We have now. to,
1: yeah. It's like,
0: oh, that was a pleasant one. Yeah, it was. It was a nice rolling action to sure. it. The duration was was nice oh, and yeah. a, a good you know aftertone to it. Some nice <laughs> some nice you know aftershocks of a people in Michigan moderate crazy, but
1: that's okay.
0: Yeah, but they they also had you know six months of. Of winter and exactly
1: record-setting temperatures.
0: Um, yeah, I, I understand. This year, the uh, the groundhog put his uh, head out of his hole and shot himself in the <laughs> exactly, head immediately. Exactly. So what they're they're going to have a, a few more years of winter, apparently. So no. So uh, how did you uh, make the choice to do that as a, on the seasonal side of things? Then. Well, first what of all, as it? I said,
1: I went to school and I was going to college in Northern California, so that was the only time that I was in Southern California. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, I've lived here since 1966, so Disneyland was always a big um, sort of icon. Mm-hmm. And when I was 18 and legally able to apply, I did, and because, I think, because I'd done a lot of drama in high school, um, I think that may have been, I mean, the, the, the recruiter or the interviewer or whoever, maybe the person who signed me, I can't remember, you know, said, remarked on that, that that I was going to work in the Jungle Cruise because I had this experience. Sure. And... I'm really grateful because once I worked there for a period of time, the idea of spending my days walking backwards at Haunted Mansion just, I don't know. I mean, you know, that didn't, that just seemed really dull. It it, it amazes
0: me that there are any overweight people who work on that.
1: (laughs) I know, it's like like the treadmill, you know, forever. It's kind of
0: like how how we had to do. the tree house we had to climb oh, the tree house a couple times a day and to uh, check for
1: broken light bulbs uh,
0: or whatever you know yeah, there was always jumpers yeah
1: um that music by the way is is imprinted in my head from going by it and being on front loading and all that kind of stuff because you could just the, hear it, it the was, swiss kapolka stopped it never stopped so
0: it's one of the things that uh when i when i go down to orlando mm-hmm. uh, i will just stand in front of the swiss family Robinson, <laughs> and i'll just close my eyes sure. and just remember sure. back before you know sure. The Eisner days. Awesome.
1: The other big audio sound for the crews at that time was, if you worked at night, was the uh, the show. Um, the Poly- Polynesian Terrace. Po- Polynesian Terrace. There we go. Thank you very much. The Titian Terrace, right? And because they used drums and they had flaming sticks, and I mean, it was you could set your watch by, you know, when it would take place each night, and it was, and when they would finish and all the sounds. It was, I never actually saw the show from the front, but I sure saw it from the side and the back a tremendous number of times.
0: There, there were a lot of people who commented that they enjoyed seeing the dancers from the sides and backs as, yeah. as often as possible. Yeah, so.
1: yeah, no, they were very entertaining, very enthusiastic, very energetic. So now, um,
0: when you now what were you what were you studying? Just out of random curiosity, on the the college side,
1: I was at Stanford.
0: You were at Stanford, um, yeah. Very. Yeah. So, but I should stop that.
1: No, no, no. It's uh, no. It'll be a little. It'll every fifteen minutes. It will stop it once it's right. gone through the cycle. Uh, we'll I we'll get forgot s- about that.
0: It's ambiance. Um, well we're talking about haunted mansion. So it's that, it's the uh, the clock. We won't
1: one. strike thirteen times
0: though. No, very cool. Um so the uh, so you were down there for the summer program. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, that was still in the ticket book phase of, Absolutely. of it. Um, Absolutely. We had yeah.
1: Carpal Tunnel tearing those apart.
0: Yeah, I, um, I think everyone gets Carpal Tunnel for a different reason. It was, you know, we was. Yeah. From holding the microphone. Well, that, that was the death grip. Oh, the claw. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. i saying, why
1: can't we just have an eye-off switch on this? Why does it have to be a dead man switch? But,
0: oh, well. Oh, well. Um, so what was I, the, the training process, or, you know, working there at the time, you know, that was still a really... Um, those were a couple of dead years. I mean, that was that was kind of a, a, at the lower end of the parks. You know, it, it, we kind mm. of gotten out of the '60s where Disneyland was still kind of an iconic mm-hmm. thing, and you get into a, a period. You know, on the um, Vietnam War right. and the Civil Rights Movement, mm-hmm. and you know, the the perception is that Disneyland, at least you know from from what I could tell, mm-hmm. kind of faded in that time period. It wasn't as um, there wasn't the dead man for that clean cut entertainment, you know. The the studios were making movies like Condor Man yeah. and Blackbeard's Ghost and Candle Shoe. <laughs> well, That's true. Um, I remember
1: Blackbeard's Ghost. So, you know, well, Cat I mean, from my reception space. was. We were awfully busy, at least in the summer. Now, maybe February would have been dead. Yeah. But I remember, you know, lots of boats running all the time, and one of my jobs since I was the rookie, especially in the summer of 75, I was sent out to do parade duty mm-hmm. at the hub. And um, we had to put up the ropes for the crossing and then get all these people to sit down. And it was always filled. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there were always people um, packed into the space to, uh, to watch. So it certainly, I mean, yes, there have been plenty of times, I'm sure since then it's been more crowded, but it seemed to be. And then I was there uh, on July fourth, nineteen seventy six. Yeah. And I wouldn't I didn't forget until Henry Golas was mentioning on the, the webpage that the park I think closed to admission at ten AM. Yeah. Because it was just maxed so out. Yeah. And then I I was off at nine, if I remember right, and I was thinking I could get through Town Square and to the locker room, but I didn't I didn't count on just how many people were in Town Square mm-hmm. and I never got through. I was Because you could just be able to get through before the parade came down and before the lights went out and all that. But I didn't make it, and I was trapped in town square for 45 minutes, mm-hmm. unable to move. And so that was certainly a popular day. But um, I, I don't know. I remember it being, like I said, there were a couple times at Christmas when I remember things got pretty quiet. Yeah. But the rest of the time, now the one thing that did happen, and I don't know whether that took place when you were there, in the summer, when the fireworks took place the line would just dry up. Yeah, It would completely dry up. And that led to one of the things that was just a prize if you could pull it off, and you may already know about this, but if you came up and had to deadhead because there was no one to load, right, because there were three boats only fit at the dock, mm-hmm. and you were there waiting, and there was nobody to get on, and another boat came in to unload, and they'd send you out. Yep. I would zoom out and wait behind Schweitzer Falls, and I would throw the cushions all over the place, and unbutton my shirt and lay on the front deck, you know. And then as soon as I saw the next boat coming, all the lights coming, just pull it into gear. And then if the other skipper was paying attention at all, you know, just as he's going across the front of the falls, this empty ransacked boat goes with the lights off go behind the back of the falls. That was, you know, I mean, there weren't many moments where you could kind of like color outside the lines, you know, in that way. And that was a, that was... Sometimes the skippers would start screaming, look at that, oh my God, what happened to the you know? And it was, sometimes they would miss you completely, but that was one of those things. So
0: Yeah, and it's, it's nice knowing that, you know, those, I mean, that, that tradition continues today mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, there, I, I, I know times when we had two or three people and we'd have a whole group go out, and we'd you mm-hmm. know, have one person hanging off the roof of the boat and... Yeah, the the shenanigans. The, one of the things I've learned from doing the podcast mm-hmm. is I don't think the shenanigans have changed that much. Okay. Everyone thinks that, you know, rightfully so. Every generation is a no. little different. Every generation has its summer and, mm-hmm. and the time they get to spend, mm-hmm. and you know nothing's ever exactly like you know the way right. it is. But at the same time, I think that the the experience is pretty universal regardless mm-hmm. of the era. Uh, you know, I think well, that there's the this, attitude of the place. Perhaps, yeah, you know, what I mean, well, and it is very. Ti- it's a very timeless thing that you can look back. You know, thirty thirty eight years ago, mm-hmm. and say you could you could walk in today on a night shift and have someone have the same attitude, right? And I think that there still is, for the most part, a reverence for the the place and a reverence for you know where you work, and mm-hmm. specifically, a lot of people I think at Jungle more than a lot of the other attractions because there is that sense of ownership of sure. what you do. Sure. I think jungle has a little bit more of that camaraderie that, that happens because you do get that
1: sense of ownership. No, and the level of performance that's required mm-hmm. of everybody and the level of energy. I mean a lot of the folks at Haunted Mansion you'd see all kind of looked like, you know, they were just sort of cruising. Well, because sometimes they, you know, we're just walking backwards in the dark and making yeah. sure people didn't fall. Yeah,
0: there's not much right. you have to do as far as, you know, acting and spieling when you're yeah. when you're in a darkened room and right. Yeah, and they they encourage, you know, mansion they encourage the gloomy. Right. They wanted cell. the
1: cool face. But yeah. but we had to be on all the time. I yeah. mean it was it was required. I remember even being eighteen and coming back at the end of a shift and just being completely exhausted. Yeah. You know, from now, having do done you,
0: that. Do you think that 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 training and that mm-hmm. way of being followed you into the things that you did after working at Disney? I mean, do you think it was a good, uh, a good start or a good training piece mm-hmm. to who
1: you would become
0: in well, the It's classroom? interesting to ask that because
1: there's two, there's two tracks to that answer. One, because I was an environmental educator for many years, I was working even during the day with three or four different groups of kids. So you were always meeting a new group. You always had to introduce yourself. You always had to be up. And I was often teaching the same lesson to a new group of kids over and over, nice. like a thousand times through photosynthesis. Yep. And so really there couldn't have been better training in terms of, you know, because everybody who came on the, the boat expected you to do the best show you could ever do and be as mm-hmm. funny as possible and as animated and, and involve them and do all of these things. So really it played in perfectly. You know with with what I went on to do because that that need for for presenting things with energy and with enthusiasm and freshness you yeah. know without getting stale without saying you know I mean we all love saying you know at, at unloading wasn't that fun that was so much fun I'm gonna go again and again mm-hmm. and again and again you know, and everybody loved doing that shtick. but and you know, there was a part of our brain that really did feel that way, you know, especially when it got to the 30th or so time around in one shift. But, um, but yeah, there was definitely, uh, not that I planned it that way or anything like that, but when I began to do that work, that training was so valuable because I'd already had plenty of chances. You know, teaching is, in a way, a stand-up routine. It doesn't yeah. always stand-up it's, it's, comedy. It's improv. But it is very much improv. Yeah. And... You know, I, I was always having to respond to things that the guests said or stuff that happened. You couldn't just, I mean, I knew, I knew skippers who were just on autopilot. You know, people could jump out of the boat and they would have gone right on with their spiel. But I tended to, you know, I faced them, looked in their eyes, tried to interact with them, tried to ask them things. And the same thing is true with students. You know, if you're going to connect with them, you've got to engage them in the same way. You can't just drone away up there I yep. mean some people can but, but I never chose to do that I tried always not to um, on the other hand in terms of like supervising people and dealing with supervision I had some experiences that were so negative that I guided my I used them as an example of what not to be sure. you know there was a uh, you know you go to the Disney University and you get all this training about how to be the happiest place on earth and you know to be this tremendous salesman And then I had a a supervisor whose name I don't remember, and I'm not interested in getting him in trouble, but he was, I'll just call him Sarge, because he exuded that, he was ex-military, and this was 1975, and looking back, he probably had been in Vietnam, and maybe he had PTSD, I don't know, but he was the exact opposite of everything we were taught to be. and. The supervisors seemed like they were terrified of him. Every time he spoke, it was like he was Eisenhower describing the Normandy invasion, and they were all waiting for words of wisdom to fall from his mouth. But, I mean, he would send, he assigned me to go out to the, to the parade patrol, uh, parade duties, and then when I would remind him that he had to let me go, he would yell at me, even though he was the one who sent me, you know, and, and every Saturday night we had to work without hats, even though it was SOP that we all had to wear hats. Mm-hmm. And that was so we could check our hair for eight hours. So there were some things where I said, you know, I'm never going to be that way. Well, you know, I'm just, I'm, because he, he never said a kind word. He never smiled. He never encouraged anybody. And I had to train lots and lots of people who had very little experience when I was doing what I was doing. And I went out of my way to put myself in their position and think about what it was like to start, and how, how daunting it was to have to learn all this stuff, and, and to do the opposite of what he did yeah. in a lot of well,
0: ways. Well, yeah, empathy is, is one of the biggest things in, in the Disney training arsenal, well, and understand, I understand, I don't know if you know the history of the reason why there were a lot of guys like that who were hired by I don't, the resort. I don't. Um, basically, after Walt passed away mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the mid-60s, um, there was a giant push, and they, they hired a bunch of ex-military mm. people and the director of park operations was a military um, a a retiree veteran. Yeah. a veteran and mm. so there was uh, re- i've heard this over and over again particularly early 70s there was just this this flood of flat-topped you know uh military yeah. uh, veterans who were working at the park and mm. it, you know whether they had retired or whether they were out early whatever it was mm. And that attitude was very pervasive all sure. through the resort, and and I've heard that story told with some variations yeah. over the years. And I think that you know it. Um, uh, I think that the concept that it's a show mm-hmm. rather than an efficiency and, and a, a, mm-hmm. a clockwork mechanism didn't really seep in as much until the late seventies, okay. and I think that's when I, I've I've heard that that started
1: changing a little bit. Well, the other thing, of course, just as a person and part of a large bureaucracy, my previous jobs have been like mowing lawns and sweeping up in textile factory, very basic stuff. This was the first time I was part of a large entity like that. And there were two things about it that really jarred me. One was it was apparent that the organization had a higher expectation of its lowest paid employees than it did of its highest paid employees. Mm-hmm. And that just was jarring. You know, and it didn't really seem right. And the other thing was being supervised by someone who could not do my job. Because had he taken a boat out, the, the, the guests would have been wrestling him for the gun either to shoot him or themselves. Because, you know, he would have, put, he would have, he would have made Mary Poppins suicidal. I mean, he was so just horrible to work with. And, and, and he made everything so tense. And he made everything so unnecessarily difficult that that I mean, I always looked forward to shifts when I knew I wasn't working with him, and and, and when when you know, then he went to another attraction, and then it was it was much easier. Yeah. After do you, that,
0: do you think that? And I I think this is a management thing in general. Do you think that there was a lot more goofing off and tension breaking and all that because there was so much pressure that gets applied. It's an
1: interesting hypothesis because there was, I mean, we knew the supervisors were hiding out in the jungle. Yep. You know, because I got a reprimand for not telling the the mother-in-law joke about Twitter Sam because, first of all, I didn't think it was funny. And second of all, I would insult large groups of people, but not one small group, especially such a hackneyed target as mother-in-laws. I mean, I used to come up to the, the elephant pool and say, you know, the natives tell me, this... Uh, elephants come to bathe here in the afternoon. This is a sight never before seen by civilized man, and this is no exception. And then put, like, you know, and pull into... Bay. I mean, everybody I'd insult, but not this one little group. And so they wrote me up for that, and you knew they were hiding out there. Mm-hmm. And so there was a... For lack back of a better word, big brother kind of attitude, and that did kind of get an us and them, mm-hmm. you know, mentality. Um, yeah, it's very possible. I mean, I was wondering... Was I was thinking back on this guy, because a lot of, you know, this has made me think back on things I had not really thought about. When the war ended in 73, a lot of soldiers were demobilized and, yeah. and left the service, and there were a lot of folks who were then available. Yeah. You know, like, like not as big as the Second World War. Of anything, so
0: there, were people, there were people that were going out trying to find jobs, and
1: it wasn't as available. No. And- no. And, and this might have seemed like, you know, a bureaucracy with a command yeah, system. A large, large company. You know, something that they would fit into. And I think, you know, maybe if they'd been supervising, I don't know, gardeners or something like that at night, you know, when they went to do all the replanning, it would have worked. But... Um, you know was, anyway I don't want to dwell
0: yeah, on the well, and, and you, you know there really isn't that sense of pixie dust running through the you know marine corps uh you know it isn't it isn't no. the the way it is and you know the other side of it too is that that was that was a period coming out of that war where the the tone of um business was changing mm-hmm. and the the tone of you know uh, the way people were with each other. You know mm-hmm. it. It was definitely a shift in the cultural values, and and That's you right. know if you look at uh, we had a, a skipper on the show who mm-hmm. was talking about uh, working in the late '70s, and it wasn't it wasn't at Jungle Cruise; it was somewhere else in the mm-hmm. park, and how it was the first time he'd ever worked on a day to day with with an African American gentleman, right. and how he came in from this redneck. Kind of a you know background where he um, uh, had these you know beliefs that were founded sure. in his family and his faith sure. and all these things, and he's suddenly working with. You know, people of color mm-hmm. and different mm-hmm. backgrounds, and eventually people with different sexual orientations. Mm-hmm. It's like he's mm-hmm. like, it made my head spin. It's like sure. it was it was so outside of the bounds of what I had sure. seen before. And Disney was an incubator for that, even unintentionally, mm-hmm. because very conservative company all the way through the seventies. Uh, it did not, in any way, shape, until the late eighties, start getting to be what we think of as the Disney of today. It was mm-hmm. not a tolerant workplace toward uh, no. sexual beliefs or, in some ways,
1: race. And definitely oh, look at all the guys on the Jungle Cruise. Oh, and definitely gender. I mean, you mean, know, you know, there was a gender issue, because I know there had been women who'd worked there prior to the time that I was there, yeah. and then obviously there are now, yeah. but there was a large block of time when it was just, you know, the well, only way you could conceive of is guys are going to be leading these...
0: Yeah, seven, these 71 circles. or 72, they, they did an experiment for the first time where mm-hmm. they... They had a, a group. I think it was either six or eight ladies who mm. got trained, and it lasted about a month. From what? Oh, was it that short? Yeah, it oh, was very short. And then um, in '95, mm. uh, we've had her on the show. Uh, Sue Barnaby was the first first, first yes. full time mm. female skipper mm. where they mm. had had done that, and it was um, yeah, it was it was shifts that were happening culturally at the time, and you know, it is it's interesting because Disney is such a touchstone cultural. You know thing that now we can look back and go, "Oh, of course, this was going to be where it's a melting pot, right, and this is going to be mm-hmm. you know where certain of these attitudes could be really yeah. under a microscope because sure. it was happening on a cultural basis
1: I gotta say though, when I was there, the cruise was pretty much a whole lot of white guys, yeah, you know I mean, there were uh, Hispanic folks who were working in retail and in other things, but they weren't that many you know on the cruise and and of course. Orange County having such a small African-American population, there wasn't a large group of folks to draw on, yeah, yeah. you know. But there was one aspect that, I don't know if it was relevant to this, but it was certainly the, I don't know how many times I heard it during that time, there, there was a message that would come down from higher echelons that we get 150 applications a day. Mm-hmm. And the message was, if you're going to cause any trouble, if you're going to disagree with us at all, we got 150 people who just applied who can replace you. Yeah, you know, and and that was, you know, eh,
0: leadership by fear, and that that's that's just people who don't know the difference between the stick and the carrot, and right. and you know they're trying to hit you with a big orange stick, and it just for some reason it's not working.
1: Well, and that did tend to, you know, I think. Oh, it colors the experience. Well, no, but I think it it made there was pushback. You know, mm-hmm. there was there was. People gritting their teeth and saying, "This doesn't seem like the happiest place on earth to me," yeah. you know. And so, I have to say, there were there were at least a couple or leads that I worked with who were really good at, you know, getting everybody to work effectively together without resorting to anything draconian. Yeah. And then things really clicked, and it was you'd come off a shift like that, thirty percent less tired. Mm-hmm. or more energized, whichever way you want to look at it, than you had with when you had to deal with these folks who kind of made everything difficult, you know, and made everything, like you were begging for things that you were supposed to get, Yeah. you know, and that were supposed to be part of the system. You were told they were part of the system, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that was hard, you know, sometimes, because there were, like, I remember guys that were always seeming like hanging around the dock box. It's like, don't they have... Assignments? Don't they have things they had to do? But they were sort of like reflecting back the, the foreman's glory, you know. Mm-hmm. And they were the, I hate to use the word sycophants, but they were, you know, the followers, the minions, whatever. And they were the ones who always came back from the break just as you left the dock in your boat. And they were supposed to have, you know. Mm-hmm. But their timing was always perfectly just off. So you always, so always had one more trip. Yeah. You know, and, and then one of them I remember these golden boys was then busted for having an entire locker full of E tickets, which he had surreptitiously stuffed into his <laughs> pockets and was, you know, then marketing and retailing to the general public. You know, and it was kinda of like,
0: Oh, well, you know, just... I never thought about the black market value. I didn't time, either until yeah. this
1: person did this. I mean, it never oh. even dawned on me. But but that was, you know, I don't know. To me, first of all, I mean You'd have to do a lot of sleight of hand to pull off. Yeah, he had a he had a shopping bag, like stuffed full hmm. of. I mean, that's that's got to be hundreds of tickets. Yeah, you know, but so anyway, but but like I say, the 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 opportunity to master the number of skills that the Jungle Cruise required, both the boat handling, you know, the spiel, the you know, all the all of the interaction, all of the stuff. It was it was it was a higher level, hmm. you know, and and as a result, it took a lot out of you, but. But, you know, I don't think of other jobs that I, summer jobs that I worked at 30 years ago. You know, this one, even though it was 38, stands out because it was, there was, there were things about it that really tested you and also gave you the opportunity to be a part of something that you knew was just slightly above. Not everybody could do this, yeah. you know, and unfortunately... There were people there who were in the class, there were people who couldn't do it, and I felt bad for them because they were struggling, and they never looked comfortable, and they never looked at home. Everything they always looked like they were ready to have teeth extracted or something like that, and I always thought, man, you know, somebody needs to give this person oh. a chance to go to submarines or something like that, yeah. you know.
0: And you know, it, it doesn't hurt, you know, being a uh, a college age uh, gentleman on the attraction that is notoriously
1: where the girls go to find guys. It's funny because I I never really was, I was so out of touch yeah. but people had to point out to the fact that at the end of shifts, there used to be benches right by unloading mm-hmm. and there'd be these young women there and I thought I didn't, no I never connected the dots I was just clueless. But other people obviously, other people that I worked with did and, and yeah, I mean I guess everybody there in the subs that was the place where all the All the teenage guys were working. And so that was where the the hangout was. But I was, that's the big difference between me and the podcast that I've listened to. So many of the folks, you know, socialized with other skippers. And that's great. When my shift was over, I was more likely to be at Carnation Gardens listening to Count Basie and Woody Herman and Buddy Rich because Mm -hmm. I was a jazz musician in high school. And that was like going to a master class to be so close and to hear those guys. Four sets a night for free. Yeah. You know, I mean, without smoke, which you'd have to deal with in some jazz club in Los Angeles and, and pay eight dollars for a Coke and on all that kind of stuff. I mean that was heaven to me. That was that was that was the huge benefit of summer nights was to be able to I'd get done with my shift seven thirty and run over to the, you know, locker room and get changed and come back in the front gate and be there by eight o'clock when they would start and and that was you know, that was just candy that I mean, was heavy well and it was you know all the way through the
0: the 80s that they kept on having the concert mm-hmm. series and really mm-hmm. once the the Eisner era started mm-hmm. you know the the Disney Animation brand got its its bump from Little Mermaid, and that was really you know when they kind of uh, said that I said I remember going when i was I was eight mm-hmm. um, and I remember that because we went down we were living in uh, the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and we drove down and we get down to where the five comes around, and mm-hmm. it says the sign famously. Disneyland left, <laughs> and my dad would say to us, "Oh, Disneyland went home. I guess we can't go." <laughs> exactly. But we only went once the whole time I was growing well, up, and it was when I was eight. And I mm-hmm. remember um, that it was Donnie and Marie were performing at the Fantasyland stage, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or Videopolis, or whatever they were calling it at that point. Yeah. And uh, but I mean, there were you know every weekend during the the peak season, you mm-hmm. had big concert names. Oh yeah. Now did yeah. they did they did they ticket those separately Were they no. they were just open to the no. public? You know, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean it was just included with admission. Yeah. And it it was it was such a gift. I mean, I was so grateful to be there during that time. Well, that and, the jazz side of it that's I mean, you well, know. They were amazing. I mean, I yeah. I got to see Count Basie at one of his last uh performances before his death in 1976. And he could he could he'd had to be helped out to the piano and then sat down, but man, once he was there, it was like twenty years fell off, and yeah, you know he could he could play and and the bands were so good and it, and we were so close and again, you know i mean it was it was a tremendous, tremendous thing and i I mean I remember the the uh, Tomorrowland Terrace used to you know the coming up out of the floor, yeah and there was a band called the Sunshine Balloon that was always playing there, and it was sort of like <laughs> The Mamas and the Papas, or you know, the Fifth, you know, um, um, Fifth Dimension. Yeah, you know, little, it was that kind of, you know, very, very cheer, like up with people. I mean, it was very, very yeah. cheery kind of groove, positive, very, uh, very, very, yeah, you know, yeah,
0: more the, the happy side of the folk kind of feel to it,
1: absolutely, but um, but I mean, I thought, I mean, when I was a kid, I thought man, they're coming up out of the ground. It's just so cool. How do they do that? <laughs> you know, and of course, it was a different park. I mean, there was the, the Skyway was still there and all those other things. I mean, it was, it, you know, when I go there now, I certainly appreciate what they've done uh, in terms of expanding things and, and taking advantage of the new technologies. But, but it was a different place. I mean, the mule ride, good grief, was still there. And, yeah. and uh, you know, so many things that connected it back to the very beginning, I mean, great moments with Mr. Lincoln was like high tech, mm-hmm. you know, for its time, and, um, uh, and
0: and minor. Since we're on that subject, sure. Little pet peeve with what the resort is doing. I don't know if you knew. Uh, I'm sure you know that they just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the uh, Small World. Right. Uh, this is going to go up in a couple weeks, so it's going to be even more dated now. I love the delay of technology. That's okay. Um, but so they they do the the big promotion for the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. You know. It was actually April 22nd, but they for some reason celebrated it on the 10th uh, of April. Maybe that cast, cast there preview. Cast previews, whatever it was. But so they do this giant promotion for Small World and totally don't mention Lincoln or Carousel of Progress or um, ah, Tiki, uh, Tiki Room.
1: Well, the two—I no, mean, not, Carousel of Progress and Lincoln—are gone, right? Well, Lincoln's still there. Is it still there? Okay. Yeah, Li- Lincoln is has had a
0: number of different incarnations okay. uh, as far as the show surrounding him. But yeah, Carousel of Progress is gone. Uh, but no, there were there were three other things that debuted at the same time. Maybe Tiki was already there at that point. But anyway, so yeah, so they just don't mention all the other amazing things well, that happened. because Small World's such an iconic. Right. You
1: know. Well, I think they would consider that product dilution or something yeah. like that. They want to focus on all of this, on this. But I'll day myself. I saw Carousel of Progress at the World's Fair mm-hmm. prior to its installation yeah. in the park, and uh, and I still can't get that song out of my head. It's like the ultimate earworm. But um, yeah, no, it, it was um, it was an interesting time. It was a yeah. very interesting time, and, and like I say, there were. There were some things that I learned there that I've gone away from, but there were plenty of things that I've learned there that, that I embraced and found you know, to be useful um, in other things that I've done. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, and now when you... Uh, so you did you did the, the two seasons. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, the two summers and two Christmases. Two summers two Christmases. Uh, but so, so you know, two, two round... Two, mm-hmm. I know what I'm trying to say here. It's not coming out. Um, so what, what did you see you had your first experience with that summer, mm-hmm. came back and worked the holiday season, mm-hmm. you have the next chunk of time when you're doing school, and you come back for the second. Mm-hmm. What was the... I mean, was it just seamless for you? Were you able to step back into it? Or or was there a different experience with that?
1: Well, it had to be different because, as we talked about before we started recording, that was the transition between... with the new installations in the in the ride, the the safari camp and all that stuff. So we had to... You know, we had to learn this yeah, so this new stuff. And, we had, yeah. and it was cool. I mean, we had new stuff to riff on. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was fun. But... Wow, we're talking about... Yeah, going back a long time. I mean, I think... Because that would have been... It was
0: the gorilla camp, and it was the the gorilla and the... Well, the, the
1: rapids. The alligator, and then the... The rapids after Schweitzer Falls. Yeah. And, you know, there's a few other things I'm sure that were added that I'm just forgetting now. But But they... You know, they—they, they, I don't remember it being a difficult transition. I remember being, you know, feeling very familiar. And I've got to say, the one other thing that was a challenge my first summer, is that rookies sometimes did not receive the kindest treatment. Mm-hmm. That's something thing I've taken out is, is, rookies can be kind of vulnerable people. And you know, there was always the thing about you get into the boat and the skipper getting out and saying, "Oh, the gun's loaded." Mm -hmm. Well, the gun was loaded. It was loaded with six spent cartridges. So, click, click, (laughs) click, click, click. And one enterprising gentleman managed to wrap the lanyard for the pistol around the stanchion so that when I came around to the hippo pool, I pulled the gun out, and the only thing that moved was the trigger, which then fired off in the holster right next to the ear of the guest sitting there. You know, so... That kind of shtick. I mean, so when I came back the next summer, at least I wasn't dealing with that. Yeah. Because I wasn't a rookie, and I wasn't being treated that way. But I do, you know, you talked about the fact that it's sort of different now, but I do remember there was always a sense of the seasonals and the permanent part-times, mm-hmm. you know. And, and there was sort of the, the folks who, were, who had made a greater commitment in that way yeah. would look at the rest of us as sort of like, See, don't, they don't step out of line, Yeah, and, it's,
0: and it's funny, because for the last 10 years, uh, the seasonal program has not had anywhere near the weight that it did before the 50th mm-hmm. anniversary. Okay. You know, it's the... I, th- I think... I know a lot of guys who are seasonal uh, 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. 2002, and I, I don't think I really know any people who are really seasonal on the attraction side. I'm sure that there, there's a lot more in foods and mm-hmm. stores, but uh, attractions, because the park attendance is leveled out uh, yeah. through the year. They mm-hmm. can just keep a bigger, yeah. deeper staff.
1: Yeah. Well, that's... I mean, that, in some ways, that's good because you have people yeah. that are more experienced because there was always... You know, there were always the folks who couldn't line the boat up with the loading You know, dock, <laughs> you know and it was like, okay, oversteer, understeer, you know, over understeer. Is
0: it... Um... Is it an interesting experience going on? and oh, it's fun. And sure. hearing the same jokes that, for you know, 30, yeah. 35, 40 years ago.
1: Well, but it's also fun to hear the things I wish I'd thought of, you know. Yeah. Somebody managed to get the timing right at the uh, uh, the native village so that, you know, the, the the guys that come up with the speech and he goes, No, man, I told you I paid you. Not this boat, the next boat, and and they'd all go like, oh, go back down again, and then it was like, and I thought that was clever, you know, and and it's fun to think, you know, there's been what twelve million trips on the ride since it started, and that people are still mining yep. something new out of a very very predictable mm-hmm. set of. It's
0: also funny that you know I hear. Because you know, I, I know, I've met a lot of people, and I hear people who are like, yeah, this was a joke that I always used to use, mm. and use it back during the 80s, mm. and I, I know someone who was like, hey, I had this great idea for a joke, <laughs> um, and it's kind of the same issue in stand-up comedy, that right. you'll, you'll have something that'll get into your head as a germ of an idea, but it's already, because it's such a common concept, sure. that someone else has probably already thought of it. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny that there's this concept of, oh, these are, you know, new jokes and new concepts. Sure. And, you know, for the most part, probably everything that you think of has been, has been mined before. People oh, sure. were doing jokes. I, the one that I still, I, I love them, but I'm, I'm amazed that the cannibalism jokes have lasted for 60 years. Yeah, that, that uh,
1: always I, seemed like... Okay. It, a little questionable for the... Yeah, well, then, I mean, compared to other stuff, it just didn't, yeah. it never really... And that was another one I would leave out. Yeah. I I I think it's
0: because it went over the it goes over the kids' heads and the parents get it's it's that little bit of adult humor that slipped in that yeah, the kids want
1: what Pixar's been so good at doing is is managing to find that layering of bill and Disney has certainly, you know, like things like Frozen and things like that have been able to to imitate that and to to have sort of multi-aimed entertainment. But I just you know, I always thought I could do better than that. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that just isn't that funny, you know. It wasn't so much that it was offensive, it's just, it was like a, uh-huh. you know, it was like, okay, I, we need a little higher standard here. Of, but I know that there were things, and just as you say, somebody would do something, you'd hear about somebody doing something, and then you'd riff on that, and then they would riff on, and eventually stuff would run into the ground yeah. and be abandoned. Because it was, okay, we're not going to, you know, we're yeah, not going
0: to do it, that anymore. It's more kind more of, you system. know, you're you're building on the top of something, and it's like Jenga, where, uh, right. you know, the, right. the tower is eventually going to fall. Right. And and that's that's part of the, once again, I've heard this, that you get the cycles where management would be more or less lenient mm-hmm. in, in cycle. Because, you know, you'd have people who would go a little too far, and sure. the management would have to press down from sure. the top again, sure. and... Then people would toe the line, and a year or two later, you know, you get a new batch of people who were yeah. you know, but, and, and that's oh, I and it's fine. I, mean, I I don't think that there's really a point where it's ever you know gotten out of control to the point.
1: where... Oh no, I don't think so. But I think yeah. when I think back, a lot of times we were performing more for each other, and yeah, that's you know, the, I've than heard... we were for the guests. Sometimes because I... you wanted to come up with a new joke to make the guys at unloading laugh. Yeah. If you could do that, that was way harder. Getting the folks from Nebraska to laugh because I
0: I, I have heard that over and over. I I think that's one of the core uh, things that I've heard over the last three years is you know that most of the time when we got into trouble, the jokes that got us into trouble were the jokes at at Unload (laughs) because A, it was more likely to be overheard Overheard. by management, right? But B, it's because our biggest audience were were the guys who were going to be hanging out with us in the break room, sure, and we wanted to. Yeah. You know, get, make them laugh and make them get their respect and get their that level of yeah. um, credibility from them.
1: One thing I do have to say, which I call the Indiana Jones effect, the fact that the boats now look more and more credible mm-hmm. for what they're supposed to be doing... Uh, when I think back, the boats that we took out looks like we should have been selling gelato from you know. I mean it was just you know, <laughs> have a gondolier or something. Yeah, exactly. We should have been wearing the striped suits and poling them down the river and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. It just struck me as you know, I guess it was the African Queen effect at the time. You know yeah. that had a striped canopy. And so but, yeah,
0: but it wasn't the brightly colored no, striped canopy. But that was the Disney. You yeah, know. they had to clean that up. Do you did you um at the time, there were still quite a bit of the nature movies coming out on the Disney yes, side. That, yes. that really ran through the through the seventies. Yes, what was I mean? Were the guests aware of that, and was there an interaction with with you know tying it into their nature movies at all?
1: Not that I remember. I mean, nobody would you know say what plant is that or something like that. I mean, yeah. we would do the stupid joke about the hibiscus and the lobiscus and the seabiscus, or especially at night. I'd like to point out... <laughs> that's know. a great joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've never heard the sea Oh, yeah, that's, the, that's when you point down into the water with the light. But anyway, you <laughs> know, a or, or the, one, the one about, uh, you know, we, you, especially at night. These always work better at night. You'd say, I'd love to point out some of the rare plants...